pray again. Father, thank you for the gift of this morning and a chance to worship you together as a church family. Uh, thank you for your word that you've made yourself known to us. We don't have to wonder who you are or what you are like. You have told us. And Father, we pray that you'd give us ears to hear your word this morning. Uh, by your spirit, would you teach us, open our hearts and eyes to uh, see, Lord, your word and to apply it to our lives? We just come in humility. We need your help, Lord. Would you have your way among us this morning? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, hey, good morning. My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here. If I haven't uh, had a chance to meet you, just want to say welcome. So glad that you are with us at FBC and want to invite you to open up your Bible to John chapter 14, verse 1. Uh, we'll have the words on the screen if you don't have a Bible, but you're welcome to turn there or scroll there on your uh, Apple device or however you need to get there as we uh, continue our sermon series this morning, walking through the gospel of John just little by little now in chapter 14. Uh, I read recently about this modern bumper sticker, maybe you've seen one of these before, that reads, uh, God is too big to fit into one religion. Yeah, well, some noises out there. <laughs> it captures the uh, popular sentiment of the day, doesn't it? That it's fine to believe in God, sure, uh, but it's narrow or arrogant to claim that your God or your experience of God is the only true one. Uh, or take this quote from a 24-year-old Manhattanite who said this, How could there be just one true faith? It's arrogant to say that your religion is superior and try to convert everyone else to it. Surely all the religions are equally good and valid for meeting the needs of their particular followers. Again, same idea. Maybe you've uh, wrestled with similar questions or wondered yourself, could Jesus be true for me? You know, I like coming to church and I appreciate Jesus and all, but not necessarily, you know, required for everybody else. Works for me, doesn't need to work for the rest of the world. And so other people's spiritual practices, whatever they may be, uh, with or without Jesus, are equally valid. You know, one mountaintop and many roads to get there sort of thing. Often those convictions aren't necessarily formed on the basis of any uh, clear teaching or authority, but more come up out of our assumptions or cultural preferences about what we maybe want God to be like or think God should be like, shaped by various influences in our culture. But this morning, we are going to look uh, to the words of Jesus and see what he has to say, how the Lord Jesus would respond to a claim like that, an objection like that. And we're going to see him speak a word, warning, um, that is radically narrow and is going to confront the way many of us view the world today. Notice how he starts, though, in uh, verse 1 with a word of comfort. He's encouraging his disciples. You saw it already. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. 
Now, remember the context for Jesus' words here. Same as last week, Jesus is alone with his disciples. He washed their feet. Then Judas left off into the night to betray him. We're looking uh, ever closer at the cross of Good Friday being just hours away. And Jesus has told his disciples by now a couple times that he's going away, that his time with them is limited, right? And they naturally seem a little bit distressed or troubled or confused. And so Jesus wants to teach and prepare his disciples for his coming departure. And so he starts with this word of comfort, right? Verse 1, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. And then he says a few things that are intended to bring them comfort right after that. First, verse 2, he says what? He's going to his father's house. Does anyone remember the late 90s, early 2000s? I think it was Audio Adrenaline song, My Father's House, come and go with me to anybody? Yeah. Okay, that was like my youth group days, okay? That jam was like been going through my head all week. But Jesus came from his father, right? And now he's returning to his father. I'm going to my father's house. Commentators will wonder what exactly does he mean there by his father's house because that sort of language elsewhere could be referred Uh, referring to the temple. So some say, is he talking about the temple? Some kind of eternal picture there? Or is it more kind of the family idea, familial language that we find in Scripture about the household of God, that God has a big, you know, estate, homestead, so to speak, and a lot of bedrooms in it that we uh, can go have sleepovers in, that sort of thing. People wonder, is that kind of what he's getting at? And I think the language here is pretty general, Maybe not necessarily bring up either of those images specifically in our minds, but simply talking about uh, the space where God is. He's going to his Father. He's going to be in heaven, in a sense, where his Father is, in the presence of his Father. God's space is where he's going. And he says he's going to prepare a place for his disciples. You notice that? And it's not meaning that he arrives where God, his father, is, and he says, hey, we're having company. So, you know, dad, let's run around the house and let's fluff the pillows and make sure there's clean sheets, you know, in every bedroom. We got to kind of prepare the house, so to speak, for them to arrive. It's not necessarily that idea. It's more that in his going, the going itself is preparing the place. It's through the cross and the resurrection, which is the head for him, that he's going to make it possible for his disciples to come and dwell and be with God. I'm going to my father's house. I'm preparing a place for you. And then what? This promise in verse 3. He will return, he says, and take his disciples to be with him and his father. This points forward to the return of Christ that day that we as believers look forward to when the Lord Jesus will come again. And this also tells us something significant about the nature of life with God, that it is inherently relational. You notice that? That that Jesus says, I'm going away, but the vision, the picture of eternity that he gives us is that we will be with him where he is. Come, I want to take you to be where I am, that we might dwell with the one true God. Zondervan Commentary put it this way, the good news is not fully manifest at Christmas when God came to us and dwells with us, but at the new creation when we are taken to God and dwell with him. So there's this picture of a relational 
eternity that we look forward to. That Jesus promises that he's going to take his disciples to be with him and his father. That he wants us to be where he is. Right? Isn't that a simple truth? That, that God wants to be with us? It's simple, yet it's sometimes easy for us to overlook. God wants to be with us. From Genesis to Revelation, don't we see it? God walking with Adam and Eve in the garden. Throughout the scriptures, God wanting to be with his people. The, the temple representing God's presence among his people. Looking forward to uh, Revelation and the final chapters of the whole Bible. With the new heavens and the new earth and the declaration, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And God wants to be with us. Sometimes we approach faith as just like an impersonal set of propositions, right? Abstract ideas that you have to give assent to rather than a personal God who knows you and loves you and invites you to walk with him now and forever. Jesus here says, yes, I'm going away, but I'm going to come back. I'm going to take you to be with me where I am. You know, Pastor John Piper raises the question in light of this, the question, would you be happy in heaven if Christ were not there? Would you be happy in heaven if Christ were not there? In other words, if you could have all the comforts of heaven, all the joy of heaven, all the, the safety and security and peace and pleasure of heaven without Christ, would you be satisfied? In other words, are you seeking and treasuring and desiring the gifts that God can give, the good things that God will give to you, or the giver of those gifts? Right? Are you seeking the treasure of stuff, experiences, or God himself? Can you say with the author of Psalm 73, Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. God, it's you that I seek. That's what Jesus is getting at, just this, this joy, this reality of, of us being with him in his father's house, dwelling with him. Is there joy in our hearts over that reality? So he comforts his disciples with this. But then notice, they have some questions, right? Verse 4, he says, uh, you know the way to the place where I am going. And, and Thomas, uh, verse 5, says what? Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? In other words, this all sounds great, you know, Father's house and being with you and all that, but uh, we don't know where you're going, so we definitely don't know how to get there, right? We don't have the address. Could you, if you give us the address, we could plug it into our iPhones and we'll get the step-by-step -step directions. We don't have the address, so we don't know the way to get to where you're going, right? And Jesus answers, you don't know the way. Well, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, this, this brings up, stirs up one of those kind of fundamental questions that we started with this morning. Well, how do we get to God? How do we get to right relationship with God? What spiritual options are there to get to the, you know, top of the mountain, so to speak? Well, what's Jesus' answer? Because it's, there's one way. There's one way to God. It's by Him, Christ, and Him alone. I am the way, the only way. It's only by and through and in him 
that we can come to the Father. And the words that follow only confirm this, right? He says, not only am I the way, but I'm the truth, the one who truly reveals the Father and what God is like, the true standard for all uh, spiritual reality about life and teaching. I'm the truth and in the life, the living God, the one who can make us alive though we are dead. And I'm the way and the truth and the life. And then he makes it even clearer if there was like any question, like, well, maybe we could, you know, fit in some other options. Verse 6, as it ends, no one comes to the Father except through me. So he doesn't leave us the option of thinking that he is just a way, right? a good way even, you know, among other ways. One option to consider among numerous. No, he says, no one comes to the Father except through me. If you want to know God and get to God and be in right relationship with God, there's one way. Scripture claims, teaches clearly, it's impossible to truly know God apart from knowing and receiving and worshiping Jesus. Which brings clear implications, right, for how we think about other worldviews, other religions, spiritual practices, according to Jesus. Again, not according to Pastor Matt, right, Pastor Matt's ideas. According to Jesus' words here, clearly, to any proposed road or path or way or approach to connecting with God other than Christ is inadequate, is incomplete, fundamentally mistaken, misdirected, flawed. So Jesus leaves no room for, let's just be really clear, no room for the, hey, you know, Jesus works for me and I like church and, you know, it's kind of my thing, but it doesn't need to be anybody else's thing. You know, there are other options out there. Jesus doesn't leave room for that. Jesus says, I am the way. There is no other. And so, so Buddhism will not lead you to the Father and kind of, you know, modern, vague, spiritual sentiments will not lead you to the Father, and Islam will not lead you to the Father, and Mormonism will not lead you to the Father, and Hinduism will not lead you to the Father. He says, I am the way to the Father. There's no other. Now hear me, this, this doesn't mean that, that all other religions are wrong on every possible topic, right? There are going to be pieces of truth, common ground that we can find, with ways that other people view the world. But taken as a whole, there is no other approach that aligns with the truth and truly brings you into relationship with God other than through Jesus. Now, consider why this is true. Like, why? Why is, why is that the way that it is or the way that it has to be? Well, first, think about the, the main problem <laughs> in the world, in our lives, and that's our sin that has separated us from God, right? The scriptures teach clear that we are rebels running the opposite direction from God, lost, dead in our sin, uh, turning from God, and then making a mess of his world and breaking his law and hurting one another in countless ways. In our sin, we've abandoned God and his ways, and we've worshipped other things, created things, rather than the creator. And because of our sin, we need forgiveness, Right? There's a break in the relationship. We need to be reconciled, restored back to God. 1 Timothy 2 verse 5 says, There's one God and one mediator between God 
and man, the man Christ Jesus. So there's one God and only one mediator, only one who can come between and bring reconciliation between God and man. It's the Lord Jesus because he alone bore our sin. He alone took our sin upon himself, went to the cross. He was the sinless one. He did not deserve death or judgment for anything that he did. And yet he took all of our sin upon himself, was treated as we deserved on the cross, died in our place so that whoever would trust in him would be forgiven and reconciled to God. His righteousness given to us. And us made alive and made new through his resurrection and faith in him. Right? So it's like we sang earlier. Didn't we? we sang, uh, nothing but the blood. What can wash away my sin? Nothing can for sin atone other than the blood of Christ. It's like we sang cornerstone. Christ alone is the cornerstone. It's like we saw in John chapter 13, remember with the washing of the disciples' feet? And Jesus says to Peter, if I don't wash you, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. I have to wash you. It's pretty narrow, right? Troubling for some today. But we should point out that we don't have problems with exclusive realities in every area of life. Right? Pastor Alistair Begg in a sermon once pointed out that, hey, when it comes to certain things, we don't have a problem with things being exclusive. For example, when it comes to the game of soccer, there's one way to score a goal, right? Put the ball in the net. That's how you, there's only one way to get a point on the scoreboard, right? So you don't, you don't just say, hey, you know, kick it wherever you want. Anywhere is just as good. Don't worry about it. No, you see, there's, there's a way to score a point. Or think about it with air travel, he points this out. Like if you have a flight bringing you home and you're going to land at SFO, there's one place to set that plane down that's going to be considered successful, and it's the runway at SFO, right? You don't just say to the pilot, you know what? Anywhere on the West Coast is good. Set her down wherever you feel is right. No, you say, there's one way, one place I want you to put it. And maybe you think, well, you know, that's, okay, they thought that way back then, but now, you know, we're in a global world. We're, you know, more exposed to other worldviews and religions, and so surely we need to be kind of more respectful now. We've learned that there's plenty of other ways to view the world, but realize back in the ancient world and in the first century church especially, there were all kinds of competing truth claims amongst their neighbors. In the Roman world and beyond, people had all kinds of views about the gods, how many there were, what they were like how to get right with those gods. And so you read through the New Testament in the book of Acts, especially the, the apostles are constantly saying, hey, here is Christ and he stands alone above and against all the other options that are there. That was the world in which the church was born. Also, we should realize, friends, let's think together for a moment, that um, everyone makes exclusive truth claims. Okay? Everyone makes exclusive truth claims. Every worldview as a way that they would explain, well, here's what God is like, our ultimate reality, or how we got here, or where we're going, or what the good life looks like, right? Every worldview has an exclusive nature to it. Some would say, well, religions teach remarkably similar things, and, you know, they're all basically saying the same thing. But when you look closer at even just a few of the major world religions, you'll see how uh, radical their differences are in terms of what they teach. Even, uh, again, a question as foundational as, well, who is God and what is God like? 
But of course, the biblical teaching is that there's one God eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But if you look, again, at other religions, take Islam, for example, and say, well, there's only one God, but they don't worship uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's not a trinity. It's one God. The Son is not equal with the Father. Or you look at Hinduism that essentially teaches pantheism. There's one ultimate reality called Brahman, and every uh, thing, you and I in that chair and whatever else, is kind of a part of that one ultimate reality. Or you look at Buddhism that says there's no personal God. There's just an impersonal kind of state of being that you have to reach at the end called nirvana, hopefully. There's a thing about even just how people would explain God or ultimate reality. And there's wildly divergent opinions and teachings in the major religions. They can't all be right. Some would say, well, it's actually quite arrogant to claim that you found the right one, that your view is superior to others. And so, kind of like the modern alternative is say, we're not going to, you know, be Buddhist or Christian or practice Islam or whatever. We're just going to say that kind of any option is open, kind of they're all right in their own way. We've kind of heard sentiments of that, kind of like the bumper sticker before. And so they'll say, essentially, Christians are wrong, right, for being so narrow or, you know, um, those who practice Islam are wrong because they're narrow. The, The right way to view it is saying they're all good options, everything is open. But do you see the inherent contradiction in that reasoning? saying, you're wrong for saying other people are wrong. And so they're saying what they're telling you not to do, right? So again, everybody makes exclusive truth claims. It's not just like a Christian thing. Uh, Tim Keller puts it this way. It's no more narrow to claim that one religion is right than to claim that one way to think about all religions, namely that all are equal, is right. We are all exclusive. Again, we all make truth claims, Christian or otherwise. So it's not a question of, well, whose claims are narrow or open. It's, It's just a matter of whose truth claims are true and aligned with reality. That's what we have to discern. And again, if you disagree and you're like, no, I really still think Christians are judgy and narrow and have their way. Again, Think about an example like the Academy Awards and some of the victory speeches that if you watch tonight the Oscars and you listen to some of the speeches, I guarantee those giving the speeches will have some opinions about the world and about what's right or wrong or good or bad or whatever it might be. It's not about whether you agree with their opinions or not, but just the point that uh, people up there giving their speeches will be very opinionated about, you know, whatever their uh, passion might be and say, here's the way the world works or what we need more of or what we need less of, right? So, simple point, everybody does it. Everybody makes exclusive truth claims. Our task is simply to discern which claims are true. Jesus goes on, verse 7, if you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on you do know him and have seen him. And Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. So uh, another question comes up as Jesus is teaching his disciples. He said, we'd love for you, Jesus, to show us the Father now. You're talking about going to your Father and you're going to take us there and we're going to be with you and your Father kind of one day. But can we, can we just see him now? It reminds us of uh, Moses back in the book of Exodus. 
Lord, show me your glory, this impulse, this desire to see God in all of his splendor and all of his majesty. Rather than having faith and having to wait till later, can, can we just get a glimpse now, Jesus? And look how he responds, verse 9. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Pretty bold claim Jesus makes, isn't it? I've been with you this long, and you still don't realize fully who I am. Show you the Father. Like, what do you think I've been doing this whole time? Verse, verse 9, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Now again, the doctrine of the Trinity affirms that there is one God eternally existing in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That The Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father, and yet Jesus explains his relationship with his Father, his union with God the Father is being so profound that he can claim that seeing him equals seeing the Father. The Father and the Son are so closely linked. He describes them as being in one another multiple times in the text. Do you see it? Verse 10 and 11, don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Or verse 11, believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? There's something much, much deeper and more profound here than just, you know, the Father and I are, are buddies. He's saying, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. And seeing me means you've seen the Father. If you want to know what God looks like, he's saying, look at me. God the Father is revealing himself to the world, making himself known in the world through his Son. Reminds us of uh, Hebrews chapter 1, right? Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Here it says, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. Verse 3, the son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Or think of uh, in our study of John, right? Chapter 1. Remember John chapter 1? Way back, verse 18. It says this, No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has what? Made him known. God has made himself known through his Son. And so notice in this passage, Jesus is answering, again, some foundational, fundamental questions about spiritual reality. First, again, how do we get to God and how do we get to be in right relationship with God? How do we come to the Father? Jesus says, well, it's only through me. Okay, second question, well, what, what is God like? What is the Father like? Jesus says, well, look at me. I just want to point this out because sometimes today there's such pessimism about what we can know about God. Sometimes we get uh, to the place where we say, well, God is, you know, so big or so transcendent or so 
mysterious or so completely other. I mean, how can we in any meaningful way claim to know what God is like? And certainly God is transcendent and bigger than we have language even to describe. And yet God has made himself known. We can know plenty about God because he's told us in his word and most notably in his son. If you want to know what God is like, Jesus says, look at me. And if that's true, that Jesus shows us what the Father is like, then what does that mean the Father is like? What do we learn about the Father by looking at the Son? We learn a number of things. One, that God uh, loves us, that God is a God who desires to be with us. He, in the incarnation, right, that the Son draws near to us. Rather than being removed or distant or far away, God is one who draws near. We look at the healings and the miracles of Jesus, see that God is healer, God is provider. We look at God, uh, com- uh, Jesus commanding the waves of the sea with a word. He's sovereign and powerful over all of creation. We also see that God is a God of compassion, drawing near to the lowly, and the sinful. God is a God of mercy, not giving us what we deserve. God is a God of righteousness and justice, a God of truth. God is a God of redemption. God is a God of self-giving love who would go to the cross, dying for the sins of the world, giving himself for his people. So I ask you, what is God like? If we want to know what God is like, we look to his word and we look to his son. Now, notice, if if God's not real, you can, you know, make up whatever you want about God in your mind and believe that about God, right? If God's not real, then yeah, just believe whatever you want. But if God is real, objectively, and is a real being that we can know then we can't just say, well, I'm going to make God up to be whatever I want him to be. We simply have to discern, well, who is he really, right? Think about it this way. If someone were to ask you, hey, tell us about your pastor at FBC. Tell us about Pastor Matt. What's what's Pastor Matt like? First, hope that you'd be gentle (laughs) and kind. But then, right, you would have an obligation to say things that are true about me. You couldn't just simply think up in your mind a version of Pastor Matt that you want to be true or think should be true, right? Well, like when I think about Pastor Matt, you know, I think he's a short, he's like five feet, very pale skin, red hair, killer mustache, born in Canada, studied abroad in Germany, has a great German accent. You know, that's what I like to think about when I think of Pastor Matt. Because none of those things are true, right? I wouldn't want you to say that about me. Say, so, you know what, Pastor Matt, he's, he's, he's really, you know, pencil thin. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, he has really long flowing blonde hair. He puts it up in a man bun a lot of the times. He loves camping and the great outdoors. He's very quiet, very reserved, probably won't want to talk to you. You, know, you can't say things like that because they're not true, right? Because I'm real and I exist. And so you have to say things that are true about me. You say, you know, Matt is you know, tall, he has dark hair, it's getting kind of gray. He's a you know, big guy, 
He loves the great indoors, taking naps on his couch, things like that. Talks a little too much. You know, you, you have to describe me as I actually am. You want to just be free to make up whatever you want, and so it is with God. Right? We can't just make up whatever we want or think God should be like. Well, what is he actually like? Who has he actually told us he is, right? God defines who he is. He is the one who has the right to tell us, well, here's who I am and what I'm like. And he's done that. So now notice, last kind of point, what comes after this. Verse 12. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father, and I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. So kind of two foundational questions have been looked at this morning. Uh, How do we get to God, right? And then, well, who is God and what is he like? And now we kind of see a third one. Well, what should life with God look like? Right? If you come to know this God, what what then? What's next? You, You know, hang out in church until you die sort of thing and go be with him? Or is there there's something for us to be doing? And Jesus tells his followers, what, if you believe in me, then you'll do great works, gr- greater works even than him. Isn't that a staggering claim? What, what in the world is Jesus talking about? Because we've seen the miracles. We've seen his healing. Like, what, what do you mean greater works than you have done, Jesus? Greater in what sense? Commentators are kind of divided here, but I think the majority opinion is that Christ is talking about how his work, uh, the scope of it, uh, of, of the work of the church is going to be greater in the sense that now, rather than Jesus being in, in one place, right, at one time, bodily, walking around with his disciples, now, because he goes to the Father and the Spirit comes, uh, the presence of God then indwells each believer. And so God himself is, is present in a, a profound way through his people across Uh, all places on earth where they are. Not only that, but we see then the uh, followers of Jesus working for for transformation in all sorts of sectors of life and society. So the impact is large scale. Not only that, but now as Christ goes to the cross, is raised to new life, and ascends to the Father, and sends the Spirit, then we have, what, the message of the gospel to bring to the nations. And so now there's not temporary uh, healing or provision, but an eternal message of salvation through the gospel for people's lives and eternities are forever changed as the gospel goes forth to all the earth. Not only that, but Jesus says if we ask and pray in his name, he will respond, which again is a staggering claim to think that if we pray uh, in the name of Jesus, meaning along with his character and his will, he will respond. What a promise. So he said, I've got good work for you to do out there in the world, and I'm going to hear your prayers and respond as you go out and do it. So no, friends, our job is not just to sit around in church uh, until we die. Our job is to go out into the world and live for God's glory and love him and love our neighbors and see God's kingdom come. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us what God has prepared good works in advance for us to do. He's kind of lined them up out there for us to go and walk in. So it's really an encouragement to know that we're not going out on our own, but we're, we're called and then empowered by the Lord and by His Spirit to be about His business in the world. And so friends, as we close in, in prayer, I just encourage you to consider what next step would be in front 
uh, what next step would be ahead for you. Whether it's first, I, I have never maybe trusted in the Lord Jesus for salvation. I've never put my faith in him in the first place and believe that he is the only way to be reconciled to the Father. Step one would be then to, to believe. To put your faith in Christ. Commit your life to him. Turn from your sin. And if you are already walking with the Lord, right, then there's an invitation then to go out and be about the works of the Lord, be about the Lord's business. See how your life can be aligned with his will. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we, uh, we see in your word this morning these staggering claims. You are the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through you. And so we thank you, Lord, that you have saved us and called us to know you. You've reconciled us to yourself, not because of our works and us being good enough or earning your favor, but simply by your grace, all as a gift through your work on the cross to be received by faith. That help us rest in that truth, celebrate that truth, let our hearts be filled with joy because we can know you. And Lord, would you fill us with your spirit and send us out into your world to be about your business. Give us wisdom and discernment to know what next step you'd have for each of us in our lives. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.